decided to change the, the sign-ups and the meeting from this week to next just because of the weather. It's supposed to be really good next week, so we thought we would just push it a week. And a lot of this stuff, obviously, is just to get people involved. But another big push is to get ready for Easter and our seven weekend services that week. So, uh, uh, you know, we're... You, Putting it back a week is not going to kill us in that regard as well. So uh, we're very excited about what's happening here at our church. Lots and lots of good stuff happening. So uh, let's just jump into the Word. How about that? There's a lot of stuff to cover today. So uh, we are still in Romans, and we will be, I don't know, probably just prior to Jesus returning. How many of you know you just can't go fast through this stuff? Um, and nor do we want to. Uh, I want to enjoy every bit of it, just like life. I want to enjoy that. Um, well, we're in uh, chapters 2 and 3. Remember how I said last time that, that uh, Paul wrote this letter uh, probably in one setting and intended it for, to be read probably at one time. And so when we take it in chunks and pieces and sections, sometimes it's easy to get confused about what is really being said. You'll see that actually today uh, very clearly in part of chapter 2 as we go through. So last week we kind of went from chapter 1 over into chapter 2, the beginning, and then uh, today we'll kind of do the same thing. We'll hit parts of chapter 2, then we'll get over into chapter 3 a little bit as well. Uh, just remember what I said also that this book is written in sections. It's three sections that Paul wrote this in. The first three chapters, uh, like we said, it's really hard to get anything exciting out of it because it is the diagnosis section of the book. You, you, uh, nobody likes to be diagnosed, right? Uh, and some of us guys don't even go to the doctor because of it. But in the first three chapters, Paul is diagnosing the human race with the disease of sin. And so everything that he's writing is intended to push that reality onto you so that you know that you are infected with this disease. So that's what the first three chapters is all about. Then the next uh, several chapters from chapter 4 to chapter 11 is what I call the declaration section where he's just championing the radical nature of the gospel. And then the last several chapters from 13, uh, 12, from 12 to 16 is where he's basically describing what this life of grace is supposed to look like. Uh, so just in a very simplistic overview, uh, that'll give you an idea of why sometimes you're running up on things that might discourage you if you're reading in the first three chapters. And also how, uh, I'll show you today, uh, how some, in fact, Nick and I were having coffee one day at Starbucks and this very wonderful, caring, uh, eavesdropping lady came up and gave us a verse in chapter 3 completely out of context. Completely out of context. And so I don't want you to be that person. If you're going to eavesdrop on a situation, at least give them a verse that's in context. You know, God's not going to leave you like last week. We weren't going to stop at the end of chapter 1, right? Because at the end of chapter 1, remember what it said? Everybody's deserving of death. I refuse to stop there. Right? God's not going to leave you there. Paul's not going to leave you there. I'm not going to leave you there. So we continued on until we could, could bring some contextual background because we're not going to read the whole thing all at once. And so it's important that we recognize that we're going to have to sort of backfill a little bit just so we understand what's being said so that we can stop and start through this book of Romans. So let's go to chapter 2, verse 13. We ended last week right about there. I'm going to read to you, and I'm not sure what they got on the overhead. They have New King James, and that's okay. I'm going to read out of something called the Common English Bible. It's actually the one Jesus used, so 
it's not what Jesus used, obviously. But I'm going to read out of this. So this is the CEB. If you have you version, uh, then you can find this one. I don't know where else it is, but that's where I found it. it. But it goes like this. It isn't the ones who hear the law who are righteous in God's eyes. It is the ones who do what the law says who will be treated as righteous. Now let's go back if we could. We're, we're in Romans 3. Uh, <laughs> that's Luke 5. And they did find it there. In my, in my notes, I think Luke 5 is actually the New King James. But here we go. Okay, leave that up for a moment. Now, if you just read this verse based on what we know of the gospel, you would be confused. It seems like it's saying exactly the opposite of what Paul preaches everywhere else. Watch what he's saying. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God. How many times have I said to you it's not what you uh, do, but it's what you believe? Right? What we believe is so important. What you, what you understand as truth is what causes you to live right. Not doing the right thing. It's what you believe because what you believe will cause you to do the right thing. So it looks like he's contradicting himself. For not the hearers of the law that are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Well, remember, he's talking to a Jewish group of people that were law keepers. And so what he's trying to do, remember, is indict them with the crime of sin, okay? He's indicting them. He's closing all the doors. There's no escape from this thing. So he's shutting it all down around them, and he's letting them know that, okay, you want to keep the law? Wonderful. But you've got to keep it perfectly every time. You've got to do it right every time. And not only do it right every time and perfectly every time, but you also have to want to do what's right Every time. Your intentions must be pure all the time. And then you can't ever want to do what's not right. Not even once. So he's not saying you ought to go out and try to keep the Ten Commandments as I've heard many modern day preachers and Pharisees preach. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if this is how you want to live, you are already dead. Right? Because there's no way you can do it. So it goes on to say now, verse 14, Gentiles don't have the law, but when, the instinctive, when they instinctively do what the law requires, they are a law in themselves, though they do not have the law. They show the proof of the law written on their hearts, and their conscience, consciences affirm it. Their conflicting thoughts will accuse them or even make a defense for them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the hidden truth, about human beings through Christ Jesus. Basically, he's saying everybody that is trying to live by the law is going to have to be judged by the law. And there's no escape from that. Everybody's guilty, and we saw at the end of chapter 1, everybody deserves the death sentence, all of us. It's the same kind of thing that happens in our day. So Paul's addressing a current problem in the church here, but it's an issue that we have even today, nothing new under the sun. And so, again, Paul is pointing out that men make distinctions between sin, the gravity of sin, the type of sin, the kind of sin. Paul makes no such distinctions. You know, we as humans do, but Paul in his writing doesn't, and neither does God. The Holy Spirit is, is leading him through this. And so if we, picked, if we read from 17 to 27, you would see basically that Paul is just... Uh, indicting them on hypocrisy. You ever heard that excuse? Well, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. It's true. 
We're all hypocrites. Unless we can do it perfect every time and nobody can, then we're all hypocrites. And essentially that's what he's saying. And see, in church, it's okay. We ought to be able to take the mask off and face the truth that we are imperfect people that love and, and believe and trust in a perfect God. Too much mask wearing uh, in life. And so I'm just going to drop down to the last two verses of this chapter, verse 28 and 29. It says, it isn't the Jew who maintains outward appearances who will receive praise from God. And it isn't people who are outward, outwardly circumcised on their bodies. Instead, it is the person who is a Jew inside who is circumcised in spirit, not literally. That person's praise doesn't come from people but from God. So now he's completely reversed his uh, seemingly his position from verse 13 to verse 29 because now he's showing that it's all about the heart even in the old testament it was all about the heart and so god is now uh, paul is now bringing this truth you know the radicality the radical nature of the gospel isn't what the gospel keeps out or who the gospel keeps out the radical nature and the and the scandalous aspect of the gospel is who it lets in isn't that wonderful? And until we see the law of God, like Paul is preaching here, completely inflexible, we will never see then the grace of God as completely indispensable. And that's what Paul is lining up here. Let me say that again. Um, until we see the law of God, like Paul is preaching, absolutely, absolute perfection all the time. That's the requirement until we see it as inflexible in that way, we will never truly appreciate the grace of God as being indispensable. Because without that, we are toast, literally. And so, what the Jews were doing, and I think what a lot of the church does, and I think this is what turns off a lot of sinners, is, uh, is um, that the Jews were using what God gave as a tool for diagnosis, the law. It was a tool to diagnose sin in oneself. They used that and kind of tweaked it a little bit and turned it into a self-help formula. Okay, well, instead of letting it shine the light on my inadequacy, if we just do these things then what will happen is, voila, we can, we can live the life we want to live. It's, it's just us doing what we can do here, and as good as we can, we'll get to that later, how some people see grace in, in an inaccurate way. But we'll just do the best we can, and then if we just carefully and faithfully apply these principles that we see here, then we can live the life we want to live. Let me tell you something. The truth of the gospel is we can live the life we've dreamed of because Jesus said it is finished. Because he has made a way for us to walk in forgiveness forever. And I know this is, you know, this is hard for some people to get a hold of. And, and I understand that. Um, let's drop now to uh, Romans chapter 3. Essentially, he's continuing the same vein throughout chapter 3. And there's a lot of good stuff there. But for our time, I'm going to drop to verse 20. And it says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
For by the law is the knowledge of sin. How many times have we talked about the fact that what we think about is what we do? And so the enemy wants you to be sin conscious. Religion wants you to be sin conscious. And so when we're conscious of our sin all the time, when we're conscious of our shortcoming all the time, what we end up doing is staying right in that place that we think about all the time. And we're not thinking of our righteousness. We're not thinking about our forgiven state. We're not thinking about the finished work of Jesus. And so we never, our, our life never rises to that level of relationship with God because we're too busy seeing all of our mistakes, seeing all of our shortcomings, and feeling guilty that we're not worthy of the things God has given us or wants to give us. It says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So now... Even Paul is pointing to the Old Testament, two Jewish people that are scholars of the Old Testament and saying, hey, listen, even what you've studied your entire life, the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament writings that you possess have championed and have announced the coming of this very principle of the truth of God's righteousness apart from the law. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So again, he's now honing in. And this is, by the way, the verse that the lady shared with us one day as we were just having a conversation about life. Now notice what it says here. Now this is the New King James now I'm reading from. Uh, so I'm going to go back to verse 21 without interruption. Watch this. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the, the, by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. And this is the verse she gave us, no introduction, no conclusion. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then if you say it a little bit more religiously, it sounds even more impactful. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you're thinking, wow, I'm, I'm messed up, I'm in trouble. But then it goes on in verse 24. Being freely justified, because there's a comma, by the way, after verse 23. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, payment in full, by his blood through faith, not through action, but through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over, past tense, the sins that were previously committed. Woo! You could almost leave out verse 23 altogether. It brings a little clarity to the whole context, but the religious mind, all of us, including those people that like to beat people over the head with that, it's all they hone in on is verse 23. Before that and after that is nothing but grace. Nothing but uh, righteousness by faith. That's powerful. I'm going to drop down to verse 28 now. Therefore we conclude, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So now we're going to get in. He's moving over into that declaration section of this book. That's going to be mind-boggling. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? 
Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Remember, Abraham was circumcised, but that's not what made him righteous. It was his belief in God. So the things that we do um, are not the root of God's favor. It is the fruit of God's favor, right? So what we do isn't driving God's love or directing God's love. God's love is directing and guiding what we do. Make sense? He goes on to say, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, this is interesting to me. How do we, you and I, and them at that time, same faith, same Jesus, same covenant, how do we um, establish the law through our believing? Well, this is what I think, because I haven't read any, anybody's thoughts on this. But when we have faith in the one that fulfilled the law, because remember, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. And when we have faith in him, then, then without us fulfilling the law, we receive the result effect, the net effect of fulfilling the law. Then we establish the law. Because the law is perfect. The law is holy and the law is blameless. The only problem is it can't make anybody else that way. So Jesus came and fulfilled it in our place. And so our faith in him then establishes, doesn't do away with, but establishes that law because that law has been fulfilled by you and I in Christ. So we've been set free from the rigor and the pressure and the condemnation of trying to fulfill that ourselves. And now we can get on with just loving people to life. Not worrying about. That's why he says, let's not go back to the, the, the rudiments of our salvation. That's done. Now let's get on into allowing God through us to change our world. And I believe that's a very powerful thought. So let me just take our last 15 minutes or so. And talk about three things that Paul's preaching helps us. Uh, to understand that I that I just feel like the Lord showed me as I was going through this. So number one, the gospel that Paul is preaching here helps us to understand what grace is not. What grace is not. Grace is not, as some people missuppose, if that's a word, uh, it is not cheapened law. A lot of people think that what grace means is a reduction of God's expectation of us. Now think about that for a moment. A reduction of what God's ex God expects from each of us. Most people think that's what grace is. That's why people won't preach grace because they think what will be communicated to the people is there's this letdown of the standard of God's you know, righteousness, I guess. And you don't want people to think that. So you want to try to maintain this. So you don't want to go there because, you know, again, what a lot of preachers and a lot of Pharisaical Christians want to do is make sure they're doing God's part. It's all about control. And when you rest in the fact that a lot of it is not any of your business, you can just be free. You can actually trust the Holy Ghost. Man, somebody sent me a picture 
no offense to the 90-plus crowd, okay? But somebody sent me a picture this week and said it, it was a caption, and it had a picture of a, of a man who was probably 100 and, uh, and had, you know, had worked hard in his life. I think of my relatives, and, man, when they were 70, they looked like 90 because they were farmers, and, and I'm talking farmers in the old sense of the word. So they looked much older you know, than, than they probably were. Well, this guy sends me this picture, and it says, uh, some people think that, or some people say that ministry is stressful. And then at the bottom it says, I'm 35, and I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> and you will feel that way even if you don't look that way if you're busy trying to do God's part of this. I want to make sure these people are saved. I want to make sure these people are giving. I want to make sure. That is not our part. Our part is to rest and enjoy. I mean, I keep going back to this. Ezra's part at my house is to just eat and poop and sleep and hug on his grandpa and just enjoy life. He's not tripping about nothing. And we need to learn that. The number one killer in America today is stress and stress-related diseases. And I think it's because that we, we don't understand that. But think about this, what uh, Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37. You'll see this on the overhead. He's talking about the first great commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. When we have this concept of cheapened grace or cheapened law, then that just becomes, well, just love God more than you do football. You know, come to church on Sunday and don't stay home and watch your team or they're going to lose or whatever. Or just love God more than you love the river or love God more than you love work. That's not what this is. The standard hasn't changed. We've fulfilled the standard in Christ. How about when Jesus said this? This is not on the overhead. When, when um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he drops the hammer and says... Uh, He says, um, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father is perfect. Uh, Okay. Right? Could you imagine him telling you that? That, you know, in this this twisted concept of grace, this cheapened law just means, well, just do your best. God will do the rest. Just Just do your part, and then God will take it from there. And I used, to, I used to embrace that particular aspect of grace. But see, that's not it at all. Because in Christ, we are perfect. And in Christ, we do love God the way we're supposed to. But we, in us, we, we can't, right? We can't do that. We just can't. Have you ever tried that? I mean, we say we love God. We come to church on Sunday. We, we do some things to make us feel like we love God, but then we, we, we say and think and do things that show that we live for ourselves. But the idea is not condemnation here. The idea is resting in the finished work of Jesus. And what grace is not is this cheapened down law um, where, you know, there's this, um, there's this idea that God doesn't care about the law, that he doesn't care about sin. He does. But the good thing is Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He fulfilled it. So now we can freely live and move and have our being in him. And then it becomes relational, not religious. 
right? And that's what we are not necessarily accustomed to because the unconditional nature of this relationship is foreign to us because so many of us, if we will take the mask off, are in conditional relationships in our life. Now, I'm not talking about just, you know, spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm talking about relationships that are conditional. And... That's what we have to overcome in that. So what grace is not is just a cheapened form of law. That's not what it is. Jesus did it. Therefore, in him, you did it. That's why I said you need to know what Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14 says. Because these are the blessings that will come upon the person that fulfills all of the law. And I used to read that and just stop reading right there. Because I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this one. I could just tear that one out of the Bible because I'm not that but then it's like oh wait a minute in Christ I am that so all those blessings in the first 14 verses are mine and so you ought to know what that says by the way you ought to be able to speak that over your situation and so many people think that the gospel is only the good news if everything in our life is lined up the way we think it should be that is not gospel the gospel means that it is good news even when everything in life seems to be sideways and what we do is recognize that from the perspective of heaven we don't have to worry about nothing And it's all in his hands, and we're trusting that because we know what the word says about those of us who fulfill the law, right? And that's another way, by the way, we establish the law. So now, let's look at the second point here. Number two, to understand what grace is. We talked about what it's not. I mean, and of course, we could go on for days on each of these, but for time's sake, I've abbreviated this portion of the sermon. So the good news in manifested reality is rest. It is rest. Rest is the proof of our trust in him, which is faith, and allows peace to pass understanding. Right? It allows peace just to have its perfect work. It allows patience to be developed in us and and deep, deep steadfastness Because we know we're anchored to something that's never going to move. That's the reality of what the gospel truly is. In Hebrews 4 verse 10, it says, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So when we come into this Sabbath understanding of who the Father is, where Jesus came, remember what Galatians says. I believe it's Galatians. It's one of those in there. Uh, I know it's not. Ephesians, so it's either Galatians or Colossians or Philippians, maybe it's Colossians. This says, let no one judge you in a, in a holy day or a Sabbath or a new moon or a festival. The whole point, point of that is that Jesus is now the Sabbath. So as the Sabbath, what does that mean? Rest. So we can now rest from our effort, our self-made salvation plan for us, that we're trying to dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and do you know check all the boxes what we can do then is just be in love with him and allow him to have his way in our life and you'll be amazed at how much he wants to get involved in us so the the gospel truly uh, could be said like this the lawgiver became the law keeper for all the law breakers right grace is this fantastic top down message 
that screams it is finished. From heaven to earth, it is finished. It's the beautiful nature of what Jesus did for us. Let me read to you a quote from a British author named Francis Spufford. It's an odd name. Even maybe an odder quote, but you can decide. It says, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people and excluding the bad people. By the way, that's exactly how the world thinks that we think about the gospel. Right? That's why... Church people run to church. Sinners run from church. In fact, that whole thing about sinners, I've been kicking around. I don't know. Even I've talked about it a little bit. But some of the people I read after realize we're no longer sinners in a sense that we're in Christ and he's paid for our sin. I get that. But we still sin. And so some people that I read after that believe what I'm teaching you today freely talk about being a sinner I don't think we need to get squishy about that we understand that we're forgiven forever through Christ right but we also understand that we sin as well and we don't uh, we're not sinners because we sin we sin because we're sinners does that make sense and thank God Jesus came to save sinners isn't that wonderful so if you, you hear that come out once in a while don't don't freak out because we're still all in the same, in the same boat here. Um, but he goes on to say, for the simple reason that God doesn't gather up the good people and exclude the bad people is that there aren't any good people. Bam. Based on what he just said in Romans 1 through 3, nobody measures up to that, do they? There aren't any good people. See, you see what he's doing to them. And, it, and he's doing it to us at the same time, is he's separating them from, remember what we talked about two weeks ago, or, or, or I guess it was two or three weeks ago, this us and them idea of them out there and us over here, and us over here are pretty cool, and those over there, they need a lot of help. So what he's doing is trying to get that division out of their consciousness and let them recognize that we're all in need of some help. So let me just reiterate, and it's going to lead us into our last and final point, but the person who knows they're bad is far closer to receiving the gospel in all of its entirety than the person who thinks they're good. So you fall into one of those, you either know you're bad or you think you're good. And you're really not, but you think you are. So that leads us into our last point. Number three, the things that we learned from Paul's writing is that we can understand who we really are. And basically, we are messy people tasked with bringing a message of hope and forgiveness uh, and good news to a world of hopelessness and bad news. I mean, I don't know about you, but it is... We, our culture, like never before, I mean, you could see it coming back in like 2000, but like never before, we mainline bad news like it's going out of style right. in every media format. Um, and so it's just crazy how now we are the counterculture of that, and we are here 
championing the good news of the gospel to a world that's really anesthetized against good news and only gravitates to the bad. If people really want to know, if they, I've had people text me, hey, if I come to that church, I want to know that you agree with me on this, this, that, and that. I said, look, at I, whether I agree with that or not, I'm not preaching that stuff from the pulpit. You know, I mentioned last week that I, that I think we ought to lift our voices to our president to get involved with ISIS. But I refuse to go uh, strictly political in the pulpit because that doesn't help anybody. Because whether you know it or not or care or not, uh, the hope of America and the world is not politics. It's Jesus Christ. Let's, let's not forget politics got us here. Right? And that's the problem. Um, so anyway... Um, let me just remind you of Peter. Now we'll go to that verse up there that you had, Shauna, in Luke 5, verse 8. Remember the story of Peter. He was a mess. right? You might even say he was a hot mess. That boy could show up anywhere and cause problems. And so the first time we really have anything to do with Peter in Scripture is in Luke 5. And so Jesus shows up, gets in his boat, says, Oh, by the way, I need to use your boat. Can you push me out a little bit? Peter's like preacher over here thinks he's sure this guy must think he's God or something you know yeah I'll push you out and anyway so Jesus preaches then he says hey why don't you guys go out and throw down your nets and he goes well you know you're the preacher I'm the fisherman and we did this all night and there's nothing out there and he goes well just humor me so he did and remember what happened the boat the net started to break the boat began to sink they had to get other people around them to come and benefit from this blessing and you know what Peter did he didn't straighten his tie and Yes, amen. God bless me because I'm so wonderful. No, he fell at the feet of Jesus because of the blessing. And he said, I am a sinful man. Mast comes off in the presence of unconditional love and acceptance. And he was able to be honest. He was able to be honest. And, and I get it. We don't really foster this kind of environment, do we? Even at church. You know there's those people that you see coming and you go the other way because you know if you ask them, hey, how's it going? That's going to be a 30-minute conversation, a one-way conversation, and you're going to be listening to all the, you know, it's like Chicken Little and Eeyore had a baby, and now they're standing here telling you about all the negativity because of the politics and the this and the that. And so you really don't want to hear it. So we don't necessarily foster this mask-free environment, do we, always? <laughs> but... But I'm, I'm going to get to my point here. Then the last time we see Peter in a boat is after the resurrection. And they're all sort of, he's, he's defeated completely. He failed, denied Christ and all that. So he says, well, I'm going fishing. So here's a departure now from the gospel back to his old life. It's very sim symbolic, I believe, to a lot of the things we experience. Not that that was really the primary purpose of it, but it is because we all have this sense of just going back to what's familiar. So he goes back to go fishing, and uh, Jesus shows up, does the same thing. Hey, throw your nets out. He wasn't quite sure who it was, but he did. And then when the fish came up in the net, because he was naked, the Bible says he, he girded himself and jumped in the water. Again, he didn't feel like he was worthy. He wasn't trying to hide. He wasn't trying to be something he wasn't, but he did feel like he wasn't worthy, so he jumps in the water. But what he's doing by that is acknowledging the same thing he said in Luke 5. I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve this. Why are you here? I'm an abject failure. And see, I think that sometimes we refuse to really just 
embrace who we are. We like to argue. We like to correct. We like to defend. Uh, we can do that quickly, can't we? We can see what's wrong with someone else, but we can, we're easily to defend ourselves. Just, it just happens. We don't even really realize it until it's happening, and here we are in full defense mode. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, John 8, 32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But I want to read a portion of a book to you called Three Free Sins. Um, the guy did a, does a radio show, and he said when he, he announced one day, he said, Hey, the first five callers I'm going to give three free sins to. And he said, Man, people were so angry calling. What do you mean? This is blasphemy, this and that. And, you know, it was a joke. He said, Okay, I'll give you three. Uh, I'll give you four. <laughs> no, no, no. All right, I'll give you five, but I'm not going any more than that. And so he did it just to, to stir people up, obviously, uh, just as kind of a goof. But this is something he writes in this book. Then he later on wrote a book called Three Free Sins. And this is what he said. He said, one time I spoke for the national gathering of my denomination and said some rather controversial things. After my session, I was confronted by a serious young man in a three-piece suit and a concerned look on his face. Dr. Brown, he said, what you said today grieved my heart. Grieved your heart, I said. There's nothing big enough here to grieve your heart. We're one of the smallest denominations in America, and I'm a peon. Find something bigger to grieve your heart. You don't want to hear, he said, quietly with a godly patience, what a fellow pastor has to say. I thought about it for a moment and said, no, not really. But if you want to say something and be honest about it, I'll listen at least for a while. I think, he said, his voice rising for the first time, really spiritual people don't shout, but he was close, that you are arrogant, rude, and prideful. Do you know what I said? I said, bingo, you've read me well, but I'm better than I was. Your heart would have really been grieved five years ago, and it would even be more grieved if you knew the whole truth about me now. We ended up talking for over an hour, and he eventually loosened his tie. All things considered, it was a rather honest and good discussion, but that's not the point. The point is how I felt when I said, bingo. Once I said that, I had an incredibly wonderful feeling of freedom and joy. Generally, I would have defended myself. I'm quite good at doing that. I would have engaged him in a debate and eaten his lunch. I have a glib tongue, and I know how to use it. I may have worked to belittle him and his judgmental spirit. Any preacher can do that well. I didn't. I just told him that he had read me well. Do you know what I experienced with that one word, bingo? I felt free and powerful. In fact, it felt so good, I've decided to do it more. I call it the bingo retort. You're wrong. Bingo. I've been wrong at least 50% of the time. You're selfish. Bingo. My mother said the same thing, and my wife agrees. <laughs> You're not living up to your potential. Bingo. And if you don't mind, I'm not going to live up to my potential a little while longer. You're not fit to be a Christian. Bingo. That's why Christ died for me. You're a preacher. You're certainly not spiritually qualified to be a preacher. Bingo. I've often said the same thing to God. <laughs> How can you be a Christian and say and do that? Bingo. I sometimes wonder that myself. <laughs> The whole point is not to be a jerk, okay? That's not what he's getting at. The whole point is just be free and knowing that, man, we're just a mess. And God loves messes, and he uses broken people 
that have been there and done that and aren't completely in the physical who they're supposed to be for eternity, thank God, but refuses to wear the mask and pretend to be something they're not. I believe there's, there's etiquette and there's all that stuff that, that we do publicly and even privately that's just respectful and courteous. But when somebody wants to just call you out, what you do is you literally take the ammunition right out of their gun. Hey, you're a jerk. Yeah, I know. So I've been like that for a long time. <laughs> I had some people not too long ago show up. And you know how it is. They come and say, man, this is the best church ever. I love this place. But then when the true uh, you know, nature of not being religious about anything sets in, it's like, well, wait a minute. Would that really, would you really? Yeah, I told you, I'm not religious about anything. And then they're gone. Because it really is the gospel. And I'm really free. And you're really free. And when we get a hold of that, we're not going to be bound up by anybody, religious people or the devil himself. We're free. We're the children of God. And that's what Paul is getting to. So next week we'll start in with this declaration portion that becomes very, very powerful. Amen? Let's give the Lord a shout today.